If you would just like to turn with me to Genesis, I'm going to be having a quick look at chapter 5. Oh, sorry, chapter 4. Sorry, we're looking in the wrong one. We're going to be looking at, at the life of, of Cain and his response to the Lord. Um, in, in chapter, sorry, I've got it wrong again, in chapter 4. And we'll, we'll look at, at Cain's um, behaviour towards his brother Abel. And we'll start in chapter 4, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Uh, the reason I've read that is we'll, we'll uh, come back to that shortly. Um, as we go through 1 John and look at repentance, we'll see that um, Cain, as he was speaking to the Lord, as he came before the Lord, um, as his sin was exposed, we'll, we'll compare his reaction to uh, another man uh, in Scripture who was seen, who was caught in his sin, and the difference between their reactions to being caught in the sin. One repentance, one of concern for self. But now if you want to turn back to um, 1 John, We'll, um, we'll start going through this now. Over the last few weeks, um, I've been preaching um, from different parts of the New Testament. Uh, and I've been, we've been looking at uh, different issues that rise up um, for, for Christians. There's been difficulties, there's been issues around doctrine, false teaching coming in. Um, uh, standards of living not in line with scripture. And again, all this was dealt with by either either Paul or Peter by pointing the church to Christ. And I've mentioned this for the the last few weeks. And again, we're, we're going to carry on in this way. And today in 1 John, we come back to a situation where there's been false teachers in the church. Like in Corinth, they were uh, there were false teachers preaching uh, about the resurrection and how uh, Christ was not resurrected. Here there is another attack on Christ. The issue here is looking at um, Christ coming to earth, taking on human flesh. They stated, the, the false teachers here stated that actually he had an appearance of, of humanity. 
but that wasn't the case. It was purely an appearance. He was not God incarnate. He did not take on a human nature. They denied the human nature of Christ. And there are references to to this teaching in chapters 2, 3 and 4. But in chapter 2, verse 19, we, we... we are told that these false teachers have, have left. They've done, they've sown their seed, they've come in, they've, they've preached a false Christ and, and have left. The blessing is that they have left. However, the church has been rocked by this and this is why John is writing to them now. So we're going to look at uh, chapter one and all the way through and just a couple of verses into chapter two. And we're going to split this into four parts. The first um, part will be looking at the defence of, of the incarnation, the defence of Christ um, taking on human nature. And then uh, the second part will just be a short section looking at the, one of the reasons why John wrote this letter. The next part we will look at uh, the comparison that we see between a regenerate and a non-regenerate person, how we can tell for, for those who claim to, to know Christ, the witness that they have come to faith or whether what they are saying is a line they they do not know Christ as what we'll what the church here will have seen they'll have seen these false teachers come in claiming to be believers but preaching a different Christ and finally we will look at the work of Christ and how John um shows the re- preaches the gospel to them shows them the gospel and their comfort and their joy there So if we just have a quick read through of verses 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here, John is immediately dealing with the incarnation, defending um, the truth that Christ took on human nature, that God himself, that Jesus himself was God and he was man. So he's immediately in there defending this because he knows this has crept into the church. Even though the church might not be believing this, it's come in and it's had uh, an effect, an impact on the church. So John immediately makes it clear that Christ is fully God and fully human. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Here John is not talking about Christ being created, but he was there at the beginning when the world was created. He's revealing to them that he is the author of, create, of of this created world. He's not created himself. He is the creator. He is the eternal one, God himself. They know that John is writing about Christ. They know um, through, through the words and the terms he uses here, particularly the word of life, the Logos, they're understanding here that he's speaking of Christ. And here in verse 1, he goes immediately to the senses. He's, he wants to show them that Christ was real. He didn't just appear to be human, but he had physically took on human 
nature. He says, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have handled. He's appealing to them to and showing them that, look, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have handled. Christ, he is real. And he, he repeats that a couple of times in these first three verses. Looked upon, handled, seen. He's speaking of the physical aspect of being with Christ. And now, this has to be clear to them. This is the false teaching being dealt with. If he has said he has seen, he has heard, he has handled, this must be the case. He physically experienced Christ. We wouldn't stand for this in any other way, would we? If there was an accident, if we'd knocked into somebody, we'd never get away with saying, oh, it appeared that I did. What you felt, what you heard, what you saw didn't actually happen. That, w- that wouldn't stand up anywhere else. So, so John is making it clear there was a physical, Christ was physically there. It wasn't just an appearance. And again, we go back to the word of life. This is important for the Jewish and the Greek Christians. There they understood that the word referred to God revealed. And God was revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. We have the father sending his son. And they can't misunderstand this because he reiterates his point in verse 2. For life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and shown to you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested unto us. He's seen, he's he's bearing witness to it, he's showing them. He's revealing the, the physical nature of Christ. He was manifested, God incarnate. God had taken on human flesh. Jesus Christ, God the Son, had come to to earth to die on the cross. He was he was revealing it to them there. And when we compare verses one and two, we see an interesting thing. We see um, the de- the deity of of Christ in verse one, sandwiching the verb sandwiching the scene, heard, felt. And again, in verse 2, we, we see the physical aspect of Christ. He was manifested between seen, witnessed, and, and being revealed. It's crystal clear here that Jesus is God, and he took on human nature. In verse 3, John makes it clear again. That which we have seen, which we have heard, which we declare unto you. He's making his point over and over that Christ was <coughs> had human nature. He took on human flesh. And the purpose of all this he sums up at the end of verse 3. He doesn't want that false teaching to come in. Because if they were to believe that, the case would be that they would not have fellowship with John, they would not have fellowship with Jesus Christ. This isn't a cheap fellowship that John is speaking of here at the end when he says, we have fellowship, you will have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This isn't just a group of friends. This isn't people at the same company just hanging out together. This is a deep fellowship. This fellowship has come at a cost. It's come at the cost of the blood of Christ. So this fellowship that they have is with one another, but more importantly, John, uh, John makes it clear here, that the fellowship is with 
God. Because it is only in Christ that we have that fellowship. It's only in Christ that we can have fellowship with the Father. Outside of Christ, we will only be under the wrath of God. So if we deny the human nature of Christ, we deny the truth of the gospel. We won't have fellowship with John. And more importantly, we will not have fellowship with God. And then in verse 4, John moves on to one of the purposes of writing. He's saying, look, I'm writing these things to you that your joy may be full. So this is the purpose. This is a a small section, a, a, a small part of what we're going to look at, but it's a very important one. The church has been rocked, has been damaged by these false teachers coming in and preaching a false gospel, a false Jesus. And he's writing this because he wants them to have joy. Because he, he writes about the, the humanity of Christ. If they believe this and trust this and dismiss the false teaching, they will have fellowship with God. And that will be their joy. This is what will bring them joy. Again, we have to understand the gravity of the joy here. It's full. It is a complete joy. And this is a joy that they will not find anywhere else. Because only true joy is found in Christ. It's not a forced joy. It's not a fake joy. It's not a a kind of stereotypical view that the world has of a Christian being joyful as happy in any situation. This is a joy that we witness and see in new believers who have come to faith, understanding that their sin has been dealt with. We saw a glimpse of this joy in the eunuch when he was um, when he was saved and he was desperate to be baptised. There was a joy that he knew his sin had been dealt with. We see the joy in the battling believer. A believer like the, the ones here at the church um, that John is writing to, they will have joy through this battle because they know their saviour. They know that through this battle they will grow in their faith, that they will know more of Christ, that they will hold Onto him because Christ is with them. It is Christ that will help them persevere. And this is a joy that will never leave the believer. They will have this joy at the very end. Because they know that they will shortly be face to face with their saviour. And this joy is not based on anything that a believer does. It's not based on uh, a feeling that they try to conjure up in, inside themselves. It's not a, a feeling that if they do right, things will work for them. It's a joy that is set on Christ. And then John leads them on to looking at the difference between the regenerate person and the unregenerate, where it looks like for somebody who claims to be a believer and truly is because Christ has worked in them, and the unregenerate who may claim that they know Christ, but they are not of him. So John outlined all of this. But first, in verse 5, it started with God. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John here is he's laying that foundation that God is light. He is perfect. 
there is nothing of darkness in him at all. He is perfect. He is pure. And this is why we cannot stand before God. This is why we need Christ, because we are not perfect. We are sinful. There is dark in us. And this is why we need Christ. But this is the foundation that John is laying here for what he's about to say next in verses 6 to 10. He says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we need to take these verses in context and all together. If we only pluck one out, we can end up in a disastrous situation. Take verse 6, for example. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we were to isolate that verse by itself, we could come to the conclusion of sinlessness, uh, uh, of perfection, of uh, believers' perfection, that we are perfect when we come to faith. Our standing before God, if we trust in Christ, is one of sinlessness. We stand before God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but it does not mean we are sinless while we are on earth. We still sin, but if we were to isolate verse 6, we could come to that false conclusion. So we need to take all these verses together. So what are these verses speaking of? Well, it's speaking of repentance. It's speaking of the witness of repentance. We see um, examples, comparisons of somebody who is in the light and someone who is in the dark. So if we say we have fellowship with Christ, but we walk continuously in darkness, we are lying. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So these are the aspects of walking in the dark. But verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a comparison here of light and dark. And this is what we uh, are going to look at now, What, why I read um, the, the section in Genesis about Cain. So what does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, verse 9 shows us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is what it means to be walking in the light, to be someone who confesses our sins. This is a genuine confession. And this is not one that we can do in and of ourselves. As we will see shortly what a false repentance, what true repentance looks like. When someone uh, is regenerate, when, when the Lord has worked in somebody, there will be true repentance because they have been given the faith in Christ. They are knowing and trusting in Christ as their saviour 
they know that, as mentioned in verse 7, that the blood of Christ has cleansed them from their sin. There is a true repentance there. Because we know that without blood, there is no remission of sin. We see this in Hebrews uh, chapter 9. And we know that if we confess and repent, we are cleansed, we are forgiven. And again, this will drive us back to verse 4. We will be joyful. So to walk in light, there is true confession. And this will be the case. There will be a continuous battle against sin. There will be a continuous attempt to to repent and, and turn to Christ. We will not tolerate our sin because the Lord has worked in us. We will grieve our sin. Our confession will be one of a heart that is broken, one of a heart that hates sin. And we'll see that um, now when we think of in Genesis chapter 4, if we go back to chapter 4, verse, uh, look, looking particularly through verses 4 to 9. The Lord had approached um, Cain and he'd approached him about his sacrifice. And Cain had not repented from that sacrifice. And he warns him that sin is at his door. And Cain, instead of repenting, instead of turning and, and, and confessing his sin to God, his heart is hardened. And that results in him murdering his brother. And then the Lord comes to him and says, speaks to him and says, where is your brother? Where is Abel? And Cain lies. And when he's confronted with his sin of, of murder, his concern isn't that he's offended God. His concern is for his own well-being. He's saying, look, protect me. Don't send me out. He doesn't care that he's going to be separate, separated from God. He cares that he will be hurt, that he will be sent out and, and into the world. That's what his concern was. So there was no repentance there. If you just want to turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'm just going to read you a few verses here. Because when we looked to Cain, it was obvious there was no repentance there. There was, it was obvious that he had, he may have been spoken with the Lord, but he wasn't repenting. He wasn't walking in light. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 18 onwards. We come in here to Samuel dealing with King Saul. So King Saul was meant to um, destroy the Amalekites and destroy all that they had, but he allowed some of the spoil to come with him. They didn't destroy everything that the Lord had asked them to do. Verse 18 in 1 Samuel 15. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the, I have, uh, obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great, <clears throat> hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, 
to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. Sounds like confession. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honour me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people, and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So here, it's it's not similar to Cain, but the heart is the same. If we look closely at verse 24 and 25, Samuel, uh, Saul turns to Samuel and he says, oh, I've sinned. There's admittance of sin. But he excuses it. He said, oh, it's because I was faithful. The people were doing these things and I was scared of them. He tries to excuse his sin. There was no repentance like what John is speaking of in um, the first chapter. And then he asks Samuel to pardon his sin. He said, just, just let me off. He's trying to make a deal. Let me off with this and I'll come and worship. He's got a low view of sin. And then in verse 30, Saul ad- admits his sin again, but only for gain. He wants honour before the elders and those in Israel. So it wasn't a true repentance. He was still walking in the dark. And that's what, what false repentance is. They may claim, oh, I was walking with the Lord. But they weren't walking in the light. Their desire was not for God. They were walking in unrepentance. So when John speaks of walking in the light, what is that? Well, it's a confession of sin. And who do we go to for this? Well, we go to Psalm 51. We look to... um, we look to um, David in all of this, in, in, in what it looks to for repentance. So if you just turn to Psalm 51, we won't read it all, but we will just have a, a quick look through. So we have Cain, who was hard of heart, and it was obvious there was no repentance. We have Saul, who tries to play down his sin and make a deal, doesn't care about offending God, he only wants what is best for him. And then we come to true repentance. And just look at some of the words we see through this psalm. First verse, have mercy upon me, O God. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And the interesting bit here is in verse four, against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So all through this psalm, David is referring to his own sin. And this 
is in response to him being called out for murdering uh, for Bathsheba and murdering her husband, for committing adultery, for murdering her husband, for lying, for the deceit. He doesn't blame anybody else. It's his sin. He yawns his sin. And it's interesting that he realises his sin may have been against other people, but it was ultimately against the Lord. And look at his desire. His desire isn't for his kingdom. Verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. His desire is to be right with God. This is a regenerate person. This is someone who the Lord has worked in. And we know if we, we know from, um, from one John here, that if we say we have no sin, if we deny this, we are making God to be a liar. He isn't a liar, but that's what we are doing in our actions. We are calling God a liar. You see, repentance is not one of works. It's a heart issue, and it is God who deals with the heart. And that is the work of Christ. And this is what we come to now in our last section. Let's just read verses 1 to 2 in chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So true repentance can only come when we understand the gospel. And we can only understand the gospel if the Lord has had his work in us, if the Holy Spirit is with us. So if we are walking in the light, as we saw previously, it is because the Lord has done his work in us. We are continually repentant. We look at Christ and run to him. And John, John here says, look, he's writing these so we don't sin, so we don't um, go against the Lord. But in reality, he knows, you and I know, that we will sin, that at times we will fall, as David did, as Cain did, as Saul did. But the difference being, if we are in the light, we will understand that our sin has been dealt with, that there will be a pain in us. But we will understand that we have an advocate, that this advocate will speak on our behalf, that this advocate will represent us before the Father, that advocate being Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the perfect one. And he can do that because he is the propitiation for our sins. That being that Jesus appeased the wrath of God. You see, no man can satisfy God's wrath. Saul tried to do it. He tried to broker a deal. There is no service, there is no gift, there is no negotiation that will be acceptable before the Lord. That's because it comes from an unworthy source. It comes from man themselves. And this is why God sent his only son. This is why God sent Christ. Christ came into this world. He took on human flesh. This is why um, doing away with this heresy is important because Christ took on human flesh. So he could go to the cross and satisfy the wrath of God. Because again, we go back to Hebrews 9. 
The wrath of God could only be satisfied with blood. And it was the blood of Christ. So it couldn't be an appearance, it had to be the blood of Christ that would reconcile us to the Father. And this was for anyone from any background who trusts in Christ. They will be saved from the judgment to come. They will be brought into fellowship, as mentioned here, with one another, but more importantly, with the Father and the Son. So people may claim to walk in the light, but will be of the darkness. It may be obvious they may preach a false Jesus. They may preach a work righteousness that we have to do in order to be saved. They will claim a false Christ, a different Christ. They may even preach a a different representative before God. But it is only Christ that saves. And they will seek to do harm to God's people. But as John has done here, he's pointed the people to Christ. He's turned to those that have been um, hurt and damaged by the false teaching. He's pointed them to Christ because Christ is the way and the truth and the life. As we see here, it is only through Jesus, it is only through him, it is only through his blood that our sins are dealt with. This is why our joy is full and complete. It's because he brings us into fellowship with one another. But more importantly, he brings us into fellowship with our heavenly father. So when false teaching comes, when um, issues arise in the life of a Christian, our joy will always be full and complete. Because our eyes are sat on Christ, not because of what we do, but because Christ has worked in us. So our life is one of continuously running to Christ, because it's only him that can deal with any issue. It is only him that can deal with our sin. It is only him that can bring us to the Father, for he is our advocate, and he has dealt with the wrath of the Father so that when we stand before before the Lord, we will be seen as righteous because of what Christ has done. Amen.